Welcome back, my beautiful, beautiful friends and family, to another episode of Into the Ether with Jackalaka. Today, we're interviewing my good friend and esteemed colleague. He is a voice actor. He is an esteet, which just basically means he likes art. Uh, he's a musician. He plays guitar, sings. He uh, also has his degree in political philosophy. Um, he studied political history and had the intention of becoming a PhD professor. We talked about politics. We talked about current events. Uh, we talked about his goals and aspirations, his dreams. Uh, and uh, we even went back in time. Yes, we went back in time, and it didn't require plutonium. So here he is, my good friend, Mr. Adam Naranjo. Uh, today, uh, my guest is Adam Naranjo. He is a voice actor, uh, a world traveler, musician, uh, he loves art and he's also most notably a political, uh, philosophy major. And, uh, he has a degree in political philosophy and we're going to be, uh, chatting with him today. Adam, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jack. Thanks for having me on. It's nice that we're finally connecting in this way. It is nice. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have thought that it was going to be in, in these sort of political circumstances. In fact, I didn't even think we would talk politics. I figured if you and I were talking, it would probably be something funny or something humorous. Tell me, what's something people seem to misunderstand about you? Oh, probably the things people most misunderstand about me um, have tended to be uh, in the past, not so much anymore, but in the past, um, about me as a person. To answer it that way, um, most people are typically, when they first meet me, intimidated in some way. Um, and again, this isn't so much true anymore, but it used to be because I was just kind of always the more loud vocal person. Um, I like to argue. I like to have, you know, deep conversations and stuff like that. I would tease people a lot and that sort of thing too. And so people would oftentimes, um, you know, think that I was uh, intimidating. Maybe they were, they didn't want to get too close to me, that sort of thing. Um, not so much anymore, but that's definitely something that, um, and I learned from that. I learned a lot from being in leadership positions and having people who, you know, were kind of intimidated or afraid of me at times. Um, and it was good. I learned from, from them that I really needed to chill really out. Chill out. It wasn't that I was always serious, so not necessarily in that sense, but I needed to chill out on my um, personality, being kind of overbearing a lot of times. And that, that's kind of on a personal level. Sometimes people get that wrong about me. And as you know, from our history, me having a tendency to joke around a lot and, and focus on humor and uh, especially satire and parody and um, things that kind of poke fun at other people or the situations we're in in life, uh, sometimes people can think he doesn't take life seriously or, um, or even, you know, maybe he's got kind of, maybe he's 
maybe he's negative because he has he's always poking fun at things and really i'm not that way at all i'm like a giant teddy bear i'm i'm full of love i'm like a hippie i tell people really in my heart i'm a, i'm a total hippie um you might not know it from talking to me um right away at least but then as the more you get to know me you realize i'm just a, a softy in most ways um you know I, I mean there's always room for you know being strong and being not being a softy depending on the circumstances but uh but i think really and and that goes back to um why politically through studying political philosophy and political history why i became um a free market anarchist and why i leaned so far into libertarianism was because my greatest um kind of central principle was the non-aggression axiom. And when I was younger, I didn't know what that meant. And probably a lot of people listening don't know what it means. The non-aggression axiom just simply states that um, the use of violence or the threat of violence in order to control other people, or really for any reason except for out of self-defense, is immoral and just wrong, period, regardless of who does it. And it's the last part, regardless of who does it, that that really matters. So it's it's kind of always wrong. It's a universal thing. It's it's universally true that the use of violence against someone else, aggressive violence that's not in self-defense, is just wrong. And um, the reason why that last part is important, that the part that it's universal and that it applies to everyone, regardless of um, or everyone in every group, I should say, regardless of who they are, or what they're what we call them, is important, is because it also applies to government, which is what people often don't think of. They think the government has some special right to be violent and to be to force other people or use the threat of violence to coerce other people. And I don't. I would say no. It doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't matter if it's Jeff down the street or the Italian mafia or you know some other gang violent some other gang group or the government. Regardless of who it is, using aggression, the use of violence or the threat thereof to coerce other people is just wrong, period. And when you realize that really all government is formulated on that, so all, all, all forms of government, and really I would define government as the groups who use violence in order to control other people. So, um, you know, I would even, I would include gangs. Gangs are a form of government. A, a tribe is a form of government, a small tribe. Uh, and, uh, of course, the large government nation states we have today, those are forms of government. It's all forms of government. But we, we create these distinctions in our mind nowadays, especially since the Enlightenment, between things like the sacred and the secular, you know, the church and the state and things like that. Whereas ancient societies didn't do that. They often saw the world in a more organic whole. But uh, post-Enlightenment, um, Western thinkers have become so granular and we start to dissect and make really sharp distinctions between things. And as a result, we have a difficulty seeing how a tribe or um, a gang or a church even in many cases or a religious group are all forms of government. It's all just people trying to utilize violence or the threat thereof to coerce other people. And so I would say all forms of that is wrong. And granted, all those different groups might do that to a lesser degree or to a um, higher degree, but that's irrelevant. It's just wrong, period, across the board. So that's 
um, when I, I didn't know what that was called when I was younger, but I knew I believed that. So is this axiom like a form of pacifism? It depends on who you're talking to, but technically pacifism is the belief that um, violence is wrong, even in self-defense. So they would never use violence against anyone else. A true pacifist is someone who would rather be a martyr. They would rather let someone kill them than act violently towards others in any way, even in self-defense. So sometimes the word, in, in a lot of political philosophy, the word aggression is used to refer to violence that is not done in self-defense. So aggressive violence, we would call it, or aggression. And so that's why it's called the non-aggression axiom. So we believe an aggression is wrong, period, across the board. It doesn't matter who does it. If you're not acting in self-defense, you shouldn't hurt anyone else or threaten to harm them. And it includes your property too. Any damage, because that's, that's violence against uh, a person's property. We would agree, disagree with that too. And this is true of libertarians across the board. If someone, if someone claims to be a libertarian and you ask them, what do you think about the non-aggression principle? And they say, what's that? They're not really a libertarian. They haven't really read anything on it. They're not steeped in it. They, it's very likely that they're probably just using the word as a way to refer to, I believe marijuana should be legalized, so I'm a libertarian. You hear that kind of stuff. Um, and no offense to those opinions. I totally agree uh, I, with them on, that, on the issue of marijuana. But um, it's really important that libertarians, people who claim to be libertarians, think long and hard about the non-aggression axiom. And really, it's important that everyone in the world think about it. Because once you do, it really can... If, I believe that everyone truly believes that any aggression, any act of aggression is wrong. If you're not, if you're not acting in self-defense, but you act violently towards someone else or use the threat of violence to coerce them or their property, then it's wrong. Most everyone, I can't think of many people who would believe that that's okay. But the minute you ask them, okay, then why is it okay if the government doesn't, they don't know what to say. You know, they're kind of stuck. They're like, well, I never thought about that. That's because we create these distinctions in our minds today um, and in our reasoning and our logic that are really, they're not, it's completely inorganic. It's, um, it's not a real distinction that exists in reality. So if they're protecting us against a violent threat, of course, anyone's justified. Any group is justified in protecting itself from a violent threat. Of course, the problem is the government isn't really protecting us from violent threats 99.9% .9 of the time. They're, they're protecting us from having our feelings hurt or from, um, you know, going hungry if we run out of money or something like that. Those are the kinds of things that the government's protecting us from. And, and I could name uh, hundreds of other examples of things they're protecting us from that aren't from physical threats. And they're using physical threat or the threat thereof, they're using this threat of violence in order to, um, under the guise of protecting us from something. But usually what they're protecting us from isn't uh, any kind of physical violence. So it's not in self-defense. So yeah, yeah. if you take that seriously um, as a human being, it really only leaves you in a position of having to find a different form of governance um, say in the free market, like I would, or in some other way that's voluntary. As long as it's voluntary, as long as you submit yourself voluntarily, and then you can voluntarily exclude yourself from some form of governance, then it's okay. 
I mean, as long as it's voluntary, and I mean truly voluntary. Like we're born in the U.S., so we're U.S. citizens. We we were never given a choice. That I mean, theoretically, I could move to another country and um and leave the U.S. Uh, and uh, take some other country as my homeland. Um, but there's no place you can go where you can just be your own uh, government, you know? So I won't get into that, that whole issue, but um, yeah, there's no, there's no, um, there's no way to get out of the, the situation we're in with being automatically included in these social contracts. Um, and you just become a, uh, a citizen of whatever country you're born in. Now, when America was founded, citizenship was actually something that the founding fathers, they were pretty clear that they didn't like the idea of anyone being a citizen in the sense that they were citizens under the king in England. Um, they didn't, because the, the citizens were subservient. They were servants of the king. Um, and, you know, in the U.S., the idea was no one sure you're a citizen in a sense, but it's a very loose sense and you don't serve the state. The state is here only to serve you. And, you know, our founders were of course very libertarian. They wanted extremely limited government because they were at that time, rightfully so scared of government and what they would do. And what's interesting is you would think we'd be more scared of government today, seeing as um, governments in the last 100 years uh, have killed Upwards of half a billion people um, by some people's count. So, you know, we should be even more scared of government than our founders were. But we tend to be more trusting of government, which is kind of scares me a little bit. So I'm sorry. I, I just I can just uh, I can I just start going and I and I get off on on tangents. But yeah, I, that uh, that probably more than answers your question about things people misunderstand about me, which was your original question. And I didn't know if you meant from a personal level or from a political level or or what. Tell me why you're a libertarian. Is it is it primarily because of this? Uh, yeah, action? it's absolutely because of the the non-aggression axiom. Once you become a non-violent person inherently or in principle, um, then you don't really have much of an, an option to either become, you know, you're libertarian in the sense that you, we could have a small government. You know, when America was founded, they didn't get paid. The Congress people didn't get paid. The president didn't, didn't get paid. Um, and, and it was it, most of the time, most of the people in Congress spent most of their time back home on their farms and they would go to DC a few times a year to vote or something, you know? So it's, it's, uh, we live in a completely different world now where politics has become this whole professional game and, uh, people make a lot of money, not just from their pay, but all, but also from all of the other activities, investments and things that they know how to do because they're involved in the system, you know, so they know what stocks are going to do what, and they invest and they make a filthy amount of money. So, um, yeah, I don't remember what my original point was, but um, I I definitely am there because you know I'm a libertarian. Oh, I remember it was it was minarchism or limited government, small government. So some libertarians would say we could have a small government that's not professional. In other words, they're not paid. They don't spend most of their time in D.C., um, but they they do when they're needed. Um, and the government exists primarily to protect people from outside threats. So you could have a, a central government that can call the militaries from all the states. For example, this is how it works in, in the U.S. There were 
Each state had its own militia that was made up of every young man over 17 years old, and they were trained how to shoot and all that stuff. And that training took place typically on the farm at home. Um, and, uh, but they were well regulated. So that, what that meant was that the militia was able to be called up and people had positions and people were trained and ready to go. And then once, uh, once the federal government called them all together, they could protect themselves from an invasion from, let's say, England or France or some other country. And in it, you know, that, that's not a bad idea. It's a very small government. There, there were no taxes. The only taxes in early America were based, uh, were placed on, um, they were use taxes in DC for using public property and, and things like that. Basically it was, um, and, and then there were some small business taxes. I, I'm, I'm not sure the details, but early on they had, um, companies who did work for the government to help them. So they contracted with the government and because they were contracting, they were able to be taxed, but all the taxing happened in DC. There were no, the federal government didn't tax people all over throughout the country and the income tax didn't exist till 1913. Um, so, and it even, and early on, it wasn't even followed. Most citizens didn't start paying the income tax until the 1940s, which is interesting. But, um, so I don't have a problem with a minarchist government. And I think if you want to follow the, the, um, the non-aggression axiom, you could, you could formulate some kind of very small government situation where the government doesn't use violence against the people per se. There's a lot of debate over this, by the way, in libertarian circles. I tend to be one who says I lean more towards like free market anarchism. Let's find free market ways, free market forms of defense. Um, police forces and everything, just virtually everything we have now that the government does could be handled on the free market in some way. It would look a lot different and I don't have all the answers and nobody does. And, and we're not even close to getting there. So it's not even worth talking about really in some ways. But um, it is important, I think, for people to open their minds and realize that a lot of the things that we just assume are the government's job and that the government is somehow morally obligated to do I would argue that the government is actually more morally obligated not to do it because in order for the government to do it, in order for them to fulfill that service, they have to use the threat of violence or violence against people in order to one, fund those services and two, many times to actually carry out those services. So, you know, the, the government, I would argue, is actually morally obligated not to do those things. On the free market, of course, everything is voluntary. I can choose to pay for your service or I could choose not to. Do you have competition? And of course, one of the big problems is that when I say that, people think they, they immediately come up with all these problems we have in the market in America. But I would argue, and many people would agree, that America is not a free market. We, we're a mixed market or a managed market. And there's a lot of things that cause a lot of complications that um, people end up blaming on capitalism or free markets when in reality, it's the, it's the laws, the regulations, the monopolies, the duopolies that are set up by government in the first place that actually create the problem. And then the, they end up blaming, you know, the market when it's not the market that did it. Um, so yeah, I'll leave that there. And, um, I think if you're, I think if you follow the non-aggression principle, it's just, um, it's uh it's not much of a leap to get from there to you know libertarianism and um or free market anarchism
when people tell me that they're non, they believe in non-aggression. When I, when I usually don't put it that way, but like if they agree with non-violence and stuff like that, then I usually, I usually, I usually um, push them a little bit on it. You know, I kind of, I, I confront them with, yeah, but you kind of do because you like the government and their whole system is based on the use of violence or the threat thereof in order to do what they need to do. They can't exist without it, you know? So that usually goes right into a conversation about it's so, you know, it's great. We should all be nonviolent, but what about the government? Shouldn't they be nonviolent too? And then you realize the government can't really be nonviolent um, and still exist, at least exist in the way we think of it now. You know, there are some libertarians that would argue, like I said earlier, that you could have a small form of government. And I'm totally open to those kinds of arguments. Absolutely. So anyway. That being said, are you a voter? No, I don't vote. Um, and I don't vote because uh, um, I have my principles. I, I believe that a vote would be to actually engage in a violent system. So to vote would be for me to express my will and try to use the violence of government to exact my will or, or to um, force others to follow my will. So, um, so I don't vote. Um, and uh, I, I don't, in this next election, I won't be voting, but, um, which makes it easy because then I can tell people, I'm not voting for, for Trump. I'm not voting for Biden. And so they, they, that kind of allows people to let down their guard a little bit when they know I wouldn't vote for Trump. Sometimes people think, um, you know, I'm either for Trump or against Trump or for Biden or against Biden based on something I say. And then I will tell them, I don't like Biden. I wouldn't vote for him anyways, you know, and then they kind of lets down people's guards and then we can, we can talk further because that's, well, I, we could talk about this later, but that gets into the whole question of like, um, people assuming that if you defend Trump on something, because there are things he's where you could defend him logically, um, that you must, ex you know, you, you must support him around all the other issues. Tell me a little bit. Uh, I know that, um, you know, you, you have a degree in political philosophy. What was your plan to do with that degree? Were you going to become maybe a, pro a professor or? Yeah, that was my plan. So, but then, yeah, um, things didn't go, things didn't work out that way. So I, I gave up on that idea. Um, uh, and, and I'm glad I did because I think my life would have turned out a lot differently. Um, and I prefer not uh, being in that academic I, I there's a lot I enjoy about academic circles but um but I I don't think the day in and day out grind necessarily I I enjoy teaching um I like um academics I just uh I tend to be I like to experiment with a lot of other things too you know so you're also a musician aren't you yeah I do play I play the guitar I mean I played other instruments growing up too a couple other instruments but primarily now I just play the guitar do you sing as well? Uh, sing? No, no. I mean, I can sing okay, but I, I wouldn't be worth listening to. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, you are also into art. Just tell us about that a little bit. Well, that yeah, that's. Uh, I just have a passion for art, especially art in design. So um, I, I would say more of more of a just a passion for art. I have a passion for artistic design work. Um, and, uh, can you give us examples? Oh yeah. Everything from, um, a, a kitchen oven, you know, like a stove to a, like 
I, when I, I look at products and I'm, and, uh, I look at their design and I look at how function can be used or how I guess it'd be better to put it better. It would be put better form as function where, where the form serves the function in a really unique, uh, and novel way. And I love that. I, I, that kind of stuff just it makes me smile, you know? Um, and, uh, I, I also, you know, interiors of homes and all kinds of stuff. I, I just kind of, um, a design nerd a little bit. So not as much as other people, obviously it's not my singular passion, but, um, I, I really, I really get a, something out of, um, brilliant design. And, um, so for me, so art, like whenever I travel overseas, I try to visit art galleries, museums, and things like that. Even when I travel in the U.S., so I've been to museums and art galleries all over the U.S., um, and I I enjoy that. Um, it's a part of my. I consider it to be a part of my life. Though, you know, I have friends who are art historians and stuff like that, and you know, I'm not I'm not into it as much as they are. But I can really I really learn from them. Um, so I consider it to be something that's really important to me something that's valuable to me. I'm always happier when I'm in a, when I'm in a artistic and well-designed space. Um, yeah, which was one reason why, um, I like to go to Europe because when I'm in Europe, I can usually rent a place, um, at a good price that is actually, you know, has, has a decent design and, and, uh, has uh is is nicely furnished and stuff like that um and i i, I like i always like going because i get to see a new place it's like i get to go and rent an apartment so i'm thinking about going to greece or italy soon and um i'm i'm like okay i can when i get there i'm i'm thinking about what kind of cool apartment can i find and how what's it going to look like so i'm looking around on airbnb to try and find you know a really cool looking place that looks well designed and well furnished and um that it it just it does something to my heart you know it makes me happy so um so i love to be around it but i'm certainly not uh, at the level of say art historian or something like that what makes you feel inspired my most of my inspiration comes from from people and being around people and conversations um definitely that's kind of the the biggest thing it's just my personality type um and definitely art and music inspire me. Um, but mostly what I'm inspired by, if you get me around, um, a few people, a group of people, or even just one person and having a conversation about virtually anything, it could be something I know very little about. And I may be the one asking questions and learning, but I'm, I'm getting inspired from it. And I usually leave something like that almost always across the board, I leave a conversation or something with a group of people like that. And I'm just, I want to do something. I want to, I want to record something new. I want to write something new, whether it's a song or whether it's a poem. Most of my poems are written after some kind of conversation. A lot of them are. Um, so conversations with people, especially with groups of people, I'm really inspired by that. Um, I can almost never get tired of being around people. Um, and I would say that's, um, that's another reason why I love to travel because I like to meet new people and I get really inspired in those new meetings. Um, both artistically inspired, well, mostly artistically and creatively inspired, but even also sometimes more technically inspired to do things. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I, 
I don't like, I'm usually the last one to leave somewhere. Like uh, if I'm, if I'm at a, a pub or if I'm at some gathering at someone's house, I'm oftentimes kind of the last one to leave, but not in the way where I like overstay my welcome. I don't mean that. I know how to take a hint, but, um, but, but I'm, but I'm usually, if there's a conversation still happening and I'm even remotely interested in it, I'm in there. I'm part of the conversation. So definitely people and, um, being around different kinds of people and stuff like that is a massive inspiration for me, probably the biggest inspiration for me. Uh, so I'm going to get back into, uh, uh, politics. I, I just want to mention real quick here, and I think you've already mentioned it, is that you actually, you're a world traveler of sorts, right? I mean, you, you travel quite a, often. Yeah. At least once a year I go to Europe. Um, and so I haven't been around the world too much. I mean, obviously I've been to Mexico and Canada several times. Um, but being from the U.S., that's not a big deal. I've been all around the U.S. Um, I, the only place I haven't been to really is northeast of New York. Other than that, I've been all over. Um, and um, then I go to Europe, and I've been in several places in Europe. Um, and most of my time um, is spent somewhere in Eastern Europe uh, because it's inexpensive. I have friends there. So, you know, it's it's a perfect place. And then the, on my next trip, what I'm hoping to do is, you know, I'll, I'll have a place in Eastern Europe, but I'm also going to pop around. I want to visit Porto really bad. So I, I'll go to like Porto, Portugal, um, maybe Madrid. Um, and before I even get to Poland, which is probably where I'll hang out for a while, I will um, definitely hit up Italy and Greece, I think, one, one or the other, because right now everything's closed in the EU uh, because of COVID-19. But uh, Italy and Greece have both said they're opening up to tourism soon. So I'm like, well, I, I want to get over there and uh, as soon as I can. So the quickest way I can probably do it is to get to uh, Athens or um, maybe Milan in uh, Italy. Those are the two places where they seem to be opening up um, to tourism. So how long have you been traveling? Well, my, my dad was, worked for the airlines um, for a long time. So I started traveling when I was young. So we would fly to different places. Um, so I, I, I'd been around a lot thanks to that. And it was cheap, you know, so we could fly anywhere. Uh, most of it was to Mexico and Canada. But um, and then I, I drove a lot around the U.S. really while I was younger, but even up till like four or five years ago or so, I started, I guess maybe six years ago now, um, I started uh, driving again on uh, road trips. Um, and uh, that was super fun. And then I think it was <clears throat> 2016 that I went to uh, Europe. Um, and then I started going there once or twice a year and spending anywhere between three to nine months there. Um, and that's, that's my thing. Now I still want to go to like Asia at some point in my life. Like I've got a friend in Japan who's really cool and he's like, Hey, come stay at my place. So I have, um, opportunities to go to, to Asia, but I haven't, uh, it hasn't been on my to-do list. You know, it's not on my priority list, I should say bucket list. Yeah. I would like to go to Asia, but, um, it's not a priority. If you could turn back time and talk to your 18-year-old self, what would you tell him? <laughs> oh, that is a great question. Um, 
I would tell him, don't overcommit at this point in your life to anything or anyone. Chill out, take some time to find yourself, be yourself. And um, because I was really, I was really kind of pressured into a certain mindset when I was at that age. And I mean, I shouldn't say pressured in the sense that I, um, I felt that uh, I didn't have the freedom to, to break out of that. So some of it was self-imposed, but a lot of it was self-imposed from a, um, from a perspective of, I'll feel better about myself if I do these things, you know? Um, and, uh, so I was kind of overly committed at a young age, um, to, um, uh, kind of religious ideas to long-term relationships, you know, that sort of thing that now, and I look back, I realize that's not really the best time in life to necessarily be overcommitted to those kinds of things. Take some time to learn that stuff. Um, study philosophy first, for example, um, or, or, you know, date different people and, and broaden your horizons and see, you know, what, what works best for you. So I feel at a, at a young age, um, that's definitely one thing I would tell myself. Obviously I would go back and tell myself, you know, who won the world series and who won the Super Bowl, so that I could get filthy fucking rich. But I know what you mean by the question. It's obviously not, how would I rig the stock market? The question is, um, you know, what sort of valuable lessons? And I think that is a good valuable lesson for young people to learn is, um, and, and to, and I would have encouraged something that was already there in me, which was to study things out, think deeply about things. And, um, for me, what wasn't there was experience other things. Um, I would have encouraged myself to experience other things a little bit more mm-hmm. um, and uh, broaden your horizons in terms of experience. I've, I've become much more of an existentialist, uh, whereas at that time I was very much more like an analytical tradition in terms of philosophy. And um, to put it in in common terms, I guess I was just more of like a very um, – logical person. When I first got into comedy, my first way of getting into it was I started trying to study the, the logic of humor. <laughs> and like, you know, um, the if if a joke could be broken down into a logical syllogism, what would it look like? The mathematics, the mathematics of, of uh, uh, humor. humor yes. yes. Yeah. Which is weird because I'm not much of a math person. I, I fucking hate math. And, um, and, I'm not much, but I am a logical person and I do like logic and I do like reason. And I feel like we're lacking in those uh, in many ways today. Um, but well, there's a lot of pseudoscience. Yeah, there is. There is, there's a lot of pseudoscience and there's a lot of just people, you know, we used to teach logic and critical reasoning, but logic courses to 13 year olds in school a hundred years ago. Um, and now, um, they don't even know what that is. And most graduates, like college graduates, couldn't take a logic course and do very well at it. So um, in terms of formal logic. Uh, They want everybody writing code now. Right. Which is interesting because in some ways, code is logic because it utilizes utilizes logic. But but what I've found, interestingly enough, is that some programmers I know actually don't 
they they're not very good at rational discourse or rational thinking and and being really and being really logical when they think through things um but yet when they code but 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 also programming is a very simplistic form of logic the languages are very simplistic and everything's very whereas when you deal with real life in terms of logic it can get a lot more messy you know so um but my big my big uh, gripe is that no one even pays attention to that now um, but anyways, going back to your question, I guess, you know, I would have told myself to keep going down the road of being logical and rational, but also experience more in life before you commit to things. So, so, um, with such commitment, you know, uh, don't commit to things with such commitment. What the fuck did I just say? But you know what I mean? It almost sounds like your 18 year old self was a little hasty. It was it was a little hasty in some ways, but then not hasty in others. Like I wasn't hasty in going out and experiencing other ideas or practices in life, but I was more hasty in terms of getting into um, commitments that I shouldn't have been. You know, when I look at my life now, I'm like, yeah, that was too too early to get into that commitment. You didn't think through what you were doing, and really for me, it was the pride of being committed to something you know, a long-term relationship or um, some uh, um, religious belief or philosophical idea, you know? Yeah. Objectively, what is the most important thing that you've learned in your life? That's a really good question. Um, that it would, I'd have to think about whether or not it's a, the, the non-aggression axiom <clears throat> or whether or not it's um, learning uh, or coming to grips with knowing that you don't know. I, I think that's a very important thing. Um, so you have to learn and you have to be taught. Not knowing something is okay. Yeah, yeah. To, to realize and come to grips with and accept the fact that you don't know things. And that um, because early on in my life, I didn't. I always wanted to know everything, and I thought that I did know so much more than I did. You know, um, the most important thing I've ever learned. I don't know if I could say that for sure. So I could tell you that it would be probably one of those two things. Um, and I, one one thing that I would say, I it's possible that the answer could be love. That the answer for me could just be love. If by love um, you mean. Um, I don't know how you would define it, but for me, it, it's um, compassion and um, emotional connection um, beyond just um, rational um, service towards someone else. Because I, I tend to be kind of, a, I'm a little bit of a fan of Ayn Rand, and I think of, of so maybe I think of love in, sometimes in different ways than other people do. I, some people don't like her because, you know, she liked to use, use the word selfish a lot. It's okay to be selfish. But what she really meant was rational self-interest. So um, taking care of yourself and caring about yourself and not giving up your life for other people um, because... Uh, you think that it's some you're some kind of martyr for other people in some way, um, and I think I think she's right about that. I think it, fundamentally, human life, what every human being seeks to have in life is to continue living and to have some sense of happiness. You know, to enjoy life, um, and so people seek to keep themselves alive, which is selfish. That's a selfish thing. You know, um, that doesn't mean that. 
maybe if, well, I won't get into the, you know, you could talk about, well, what if it was your life against someone else's? Well, sure. You may say, you know what? Forget it. You can take my life and save my family or my kids or whatever. Like that's, you can get into scenarios like that. But ultimately, most people want to continue to save their life at pretty much any cost. Um, and um, some, and people want to uh, be happy, you know? And I think love is when you, is when you, really genuinely care about that other person's happiness the same way you care about yours. Um, and, and that's hard. That's a fucking hard thing. That's not easy, you know, like, um, in so many ways. And, uh, because, because none of us really do that naturally. We think we do. We talk a lot of shit, you know, we're like, you know, your happiness means as much to you as it, as it does to, as my happiness means to me. I mean, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Your happiness means as much to me as my own, you know. But in reality, um, we oftentimes seek to for the other person to make us happy, you know. And that's something that takes time for us to learn how to get past and to deal with um, in our own little ways. Um, and uh, it's a lifelong endeavor. But certainly, love is related to the idea of of really caring about someone else's not only their physical life, but also their happiness and joy in life, um, as much as you care about your own. Um, and it's, it's like having that true, that really deep connection with someone where you care about them in that way. Um, so you can love your friends, but you can also love and in, in, in that sort of way, but you can also be in love with someone specifically that one person in that sort of way. But, um, and you can even love strangers to some degree in that kind of way. Um, and, uh, and in, in one sense, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, uh, you know, just shooting from the hip here. But in another sense, um, uh, we oftentimes love is something that is related to what we get from that person too, you know? Um, and, uh, so love is a very interesting thing. There's a lot of depth to it, but I think for me, um, learning love or the lesson of love or whatever you want to call it has been a huge part of my life because I mean, yes, I'm, I like the rational stuff and the logical things and the politics, but really, you know, to get really personal, this is how I would say it. Um, when I'm, when I'm alone and with myself in the quiet moments of my life, what comes to my mind more than anything else is love without a doubt. No matter, I mean, and this happens on a nightly basis. When I'm alone with myself and I'm quiet, what comes to mind is not all of these other things, politics or logic or reason or whatever, which I like to talk about a lot, but I'm also very much an existentialist. Um, what really matters to me and what comes to my mind and even comes to my lips is love. And the depth of all that means, can we really express that? Can we really delve deeply into what that is all about? No, I'm, I touched on it a minute ago. You can't, but there's something mysterious to it and deep to it that is um, kind of beyond expression in many ways. And for me, that is like the most beautiful thing in life, whether it's love for friends or a fellow man, or whether it's uh, falling in love with another person. Um, love is, is this, just this deep thing that, um, I guess in some way, I guess I would say that would be the one thing, the most important lesson I've learned. And you know what's funny? I've said this, um, and I said this recently to someone. I don't remember the conversation now, but, um, and it's, 
it could have been something I heard some, I don't remember, but um, I was, the question arose in my mind, like, what would you really regret if you died? You know, what would be your biggest regret? Um, and I thought to myself, I don't have any regrets really. I mean, I have, I have re small regrets, you know, things I wish I could have done better and, and stuff like that, or things I wish that would have worked out differently. Sure. Yeah. But I don't think I can fully, I don't think I could really feel a deep sense of regret because I've been able to do what I consider to, to be uh, the most important thing in life, which is to fall in love and, and not just, um, yes, with another individual to experience that kind of deep, incredible love that's just beyond words. Yes. But also, um, for fellow man and for friends and stuff like that. Like I have a serious passion for my friends and fellow man that to me is like no fucking joke, you know, and that's where all the politics and stuff comes from. Really. It didn't originally, but it, it has become that. And, um, that's why the non-aggression axiom is so formulative, so foundational in my beliefs is because it really has to do with love. You don't hurt people you love, you know, what are your thoughts on polyamory versus a monogamy or anything in between? You know, I think everyone is different. And I think certainly we probably would all agree on that. And I think for some people, you're right. For some people, polyamory can work. I have read, I have read some, some studies, um, uh, I've read a couple articles, if anyone wants to find them on psychology today on polyamory. And, and, um, there seems to be research that indicates that it tends to lead towards the destruction of relationships. Um, but I honestly am not an expert in that, um, field. So it's hard for me to say whether or not I've heard the opposite. Yeah. It's, it's hard for me to say because it I, immediately when i say that i think of a lot of questions like okay well were those relationships already bound to disintegrate anyways you know and that sort of thing yeah there's a lot of uh, factors in there yeah there's a ton of factors and it greatly depends on the person i know for me personally i couldn't do it for me personally because of the type of person i am i love to be around people i love to be with people and i really do love other people but i need like that one person who i would be in a monogamous very close relationship with who that would be the one person I'm with because it's almost like a, it's almost like a refuge from all of that other, um, connection that I have with other human beings, because I do have, um, close connection with people. I, I really care about people. Sometimes people I don't even know that well, but I, I really care about them for whatever reason. And a lot of it sometimes has to do with principles or things I care about. Um, so because maybe they're, they have some connection with me in that way that I find myself, you know, being empathetic and caring about that person. So it's like, it's in a sense that monogamous, monogamous relationship for me would be a refuge from all of that other, all of those other connections. Um, because I don't know if I could survive in that sort of constant connect, close connection with other people. Now I have to, and, and that's another funny thing is that like, I mean, there are people who do that, but Dealing with one person is hard enough. Dealing with multiple, like if I had 10 wives, I'd fucking shoot myself in the head, you know? Like, I don't think I could handle that. Um, and some guys do, some Mormons do. They, they, you know, they got their thing going on. That's cool. But, um, for me, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. But ob obviously, I have no judgment towards people who, people who do, um, choose that route or take that route. And I can understand even from, um, 
the arguments that they formulate for why it works best for them, um, I like I get it. I get where they're coming from. It doesn't work for me personally, and I don't get it from a personal perspective, but I certainly don't judge it. Um, and it's an interesting, it'll be interesting to see what happens to humanity in general, because um, the more you hear about, so the like um, evolutionary psychology and what they have to say about the history of humanity and how we evolved and how our species um, made it for a long period of time, um, there is some debate about whether or not monogamy is what we evolved into or whether or not it was um, an external kind of pressure that was put on humanity later on through, say, religion or even through evolutionary um, evolutionary processes. Perhaps it was safer for people to be in a monogamous relationship. I'm not an expert on that, but I certainly think that with regard to the Evolutionary psychology is really speculative, extremely speculative. There's very little solid evidence, um, in my opinion. Um, and I've listened to, you know, and I've read some books on it. And I just, I'm kind of like, yeah, a lot of it is speculation. So who knows? Um, but as we go forward, people are more willing to accept things like open relationships, polyamory, and so on. And as a result, um, as a result, uh, I think that's uh we may see humanity change in that way. You know, it's possible in the future we see more of that happening. It becomes more common. I kind of wanted to round this out as best as I could, but I do want to get back into some politics um ideas and questions with you just because you're very fascinating to talk to about these kinds of things because you have interesting points of views that uh, most people won't find. Let's take this really current and talk about uh, the protests and the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, what have you learned from the current data related to police killing people? It's really interesting. I'm fascinated by it. Um, I got a hold of all the data for 2013 through 2019, and I was uh, pouring over it. Not an incredible, I mean, it's it's a lot of data to go through. So going through it in intense detail and and the data set that i have it has literally all of the articles you can go read the the news and the um court reports and all kinds of things about each of these cases where someone was killed by a cop by a policeman so a policeman that sounds so that that's uh i did not mean to gender policeman um uh, by a by a police officer um and uh, <laughs> I haven't used that word since I was a kid. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a policeman, you know, anyway. Um, so, so uh, yeah, pouring over it, I, I didn't, so I didn't get into the details of reading, but I was thinking it would be, it would be an interesting podcast for someone because in that time frame, there's about 5,000 deaths. So you could easily, um, do 5,000 episodes, spend one episode on each of those um, cases. The vast majority of them, um, the officers were justified. There was never any action taken against the officer. Typically, it was, you know, someone posed a threat to the officer and they protected themselves or someone else. So, but what I found was interesting was that a lot of them are still under investigation some of them three or four years in like, I don't understand why. Now, I don't know if the data is just not updated, not correct, but I was really surprised at how many of them say pending investigation. Um, 
And I'd like to find out why. I think it would be interesting to do a podcast and to call um, some of these, uh, some of the uh, police chiefs and um, maybe even lawyers or judges and find out what's going on in this case. Now, if it got to the point where it was before a judge, I suppose it wouldn't take that long. It's, they're not held up in court. I think they're held up in some kind of preliminary investigations. Um, and why so long? Why would it take so long? Um, so I'd like to find out. I think it would be, you know, podcasting's become really popular. Um, and the, some of the most interesting podcasts, uh, some of the most popular podcasts are the ones that are like true crime and stuff like that. It would be Maybe someone's already done it, but I think it would be a good idea for a true crime podcast to like go and investigate some of these uh, murders that are still pending investigation. What happened? And there, there were so many of them that I thought, you know, if statistically even just a quarter of these or a tenth of these were instances where the cop um, should have been tried and convicted and was in the wrong but it's being held up by police precincts or something like that, or some internal affairs investigation that's purposefully holding it up. Is it, I mean, just if it were a tenth of them, it would be more than the number of actual convictions I saw. I mean, because I was shocked at how few convictions there have been in the last several years. So let's say I'm a police officer in uh, the Sacramento, with the Sacramento City Police, and I possibly wrongfully shot someone and I need to be investigated. Is the Sacramento city police going to be the ones investigating me, my, like my colleagues, or do they bring in uh, outside sources to investigate the matter? That's an excellent question. I, I think, well, they have, in, they have internal affairs. So they have a group of um, other cops that their job is to investigate cops. Um, and they're used all the time. I mean, um, even for some of the um, arrests and things that have been done in the riots recently uh, have are being investigated by internal affairs already. So it happens a lot. I can't help but think that something like that, it's inherently bias. <laughs> Conflict of interest, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. It's suspect. It's suspect because that's and that's why I started thinking because there were hundreds, hundreds of these um, cases that were pending investigation. And there was only like maybe 30, there were literally, in terms of convictions of cops murdering black people, there was only like um, 10 to 20, somewhere in there. It might've been um, even lower, uh, but I counted nine or 10 and um, for sure. But some of them are confusing because when you look at the details in the data sets, it's like, it's sometimes it's not sure whether some of them were convicted. Some of them some said criminal, some of them said, so it's depending on who, how you're counting. Yeah, go ahead. There could be situations that uh, cops indeed used excessive force illegally and nobody was around with their, with their their phone or their camera to capture it. And they're writing their own reports. You know, this is what happened and there was no, there was wrong, no wrong doing, doing. but the same could be said for the other way around too. So. Yeah. The, 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 the adverse to that or the opposite of that is 
sometimes people get it on video, but they only get the, the last bit on video or something like that. And, and there was some context that was missed where the person maybe showed a gun and you don't see it in the video, but the officer saw it beforehand or something like that. So, but I would guess, I would guess, and, and, not a lot of evidence or proof, except for just common human experience, you would probably agree that if there's a lie happening one way or the other, it's probably cops lying about having murdered a black person and, and justifying it, then it would be the other way around. Um, for one, there's more at risk um, than you know the, the opposite being true. I mean, if an officer has a lot to risk, if he got caught shooting someone he shouldn't have. Whereas if, um, you know, someone who has a phone isn't trying to lie about what they're just trying to capture what's on video. Right. But um, so uh, the false convictions of police, I highly doubt they're happening. What I think is more often happening is that they're not being convicted. They're not being investigated. And then when investigations happen, they're probably some of them, it appears but based on this data. And I have to add a huge caveat. I don't know if the data is updated that well, the data I received, but, um, it, you know, so it's hard to say maybe, maybe a lot of those pending investigations have, have, uh, already been finished and it was all justified shootings. I don't know. Um, I just have to say for the sake of, you know, that everyone knows who's listening that even if just a 10th of those were, um, not justified, it would mean double the number of non-justified shootings I'm aware of because there were only like 10 or really between 10 and 15 cases where people, where cops were convicted and found guilty of negligible, negligent homicide or something like that. There were a couple cases of first degree um, and those were against white people um, actually. Um, and I'm assuming that meant that cops who were killing other people because they knew they had dirty shit on them or something like that. And so the cop actually premeditatively went and killed someone else. Um, and then <clears throat> in terms of premeditation, there were murder-suicides. There were cops who killed themselves and their families. Um, and there were a few of those, a handful. There were actually more of those than there were of armed black people being killed by cops um, in, in an unjustified way where they were convicted. Um, and that's what I was looking at. I, I, I narrowed down the data to armed white and black armed people and where, and then looking at, um, whether or not it was justified, unjustified. Um, and you know, I broke it down that way and whether it was still under investigation and all of that, I wanted to look at, um, armed people. I also looked at it the other way, but in terms of, um, so I looked at both, um, but I was looking specifically at armed because I was having a conversation with someone who was asking me about it and I wanted to get information about that specific question. Um, and in most cases, when an officer shoots, someone is armed. There were some cases, several actually, where they weren't armed, but they had a vehicle and they were trying to run the cop over, um, or the cop feared for his life, the cop feared for his life, which, you know, could mean... Maybe he wasn't really trying to run him over. Maybe he was just trying to get out of there and the cop freaked out. Um, but when I look at all the data together, the, this is something I think is important. The actual number per capita, the percentage, um, I have it written down here and I'll read it to you. Um, the uh, black people are killed 
uh, black people as a percentage of the black population, uh, 0.0047% of them were killed in from 2013 to 2019. So that's an extremely small number. So it's important to keep that in mind that sometimes it's, it's put out there like there's some kind of genocide happening, but it's, it's the numbers don't, they do not show that. Um, and I just have to be honest. I'm, I'm very anti-cop, obviously, in some sense, because I'm a libertarian and libertarians are known for believing that, um, police forces should all be done away with and we should move to a free market of security in some way. Um, and, uh, so it's kind of funny to watch a lot of people on the left now calling for the disbanding of police forces. And as a libertarian, I'm like, let's do it. Fucking awesome. Let's see how it works. Let's, let's try something else and run an experiment. I don't think it'll work because we can't move to it right away. And I think there's a lot of, uh, it, it, it doesn't just work that way where all of a sudden you flip the switch, you do away with the police and then criminals are just going to, you know, no, they're going to, they're going to, definitely take advantage of that. So you have to have something to replace it. And then you have to transition into that, um, that other plan, whatever you're using. And, um, and I don't think a plan where you have social workers walking around who aren't armed is actually going to work. That will not work. Whatever you move to, the people have to be armed and really, and, and this is something that, so my overseas listeners aren't going to understand this because they don't understand Americans in this way, how we're so pro-gun, not all of us, but I am, um, that I would say that um, all Americans should be armed. And now we've seen uh, gun purchasing skyrocket in the last few months, first because of the um, COVID-19, and now also even more so because of the riots and stuff. Um, I think it's smart for people to be to defend themselves and to be able to defend themselves and uh i think that takes care of a lot of issues right there but um which is why places that have lots of gun ownership and where people carry their own guns have the lowest crime rates in us in the us but the cities where guns are virtually outlawed and where people almost can't carry guns like chicago have the highest rates of um gun violence and uh and violent crime. And I don't think, and I, I don't think that's an accident. I think it is because people aren't trained and don't carry guns there. Um, like they do in places like Alaska where the crime rates really low for violent crime. And there's a reason for that. When I go out, I see people carrying guns. I'm not going to screw around when I see five guys at the store open carrying, like it's just a stupid idea. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, you know, um, but anyways, uh, with regard to white people, because I mentioned um, 0.004%, 0.0047%, sorry, uh, per capita of the black population was murdered by a cop in um, in those uh, in in the data I was looking at. For whites, it was 0.0017%. The two sources that I was able to find online that were available to anyone right now. Uh, come from two different websites. One is statistica.com and the other is mappingpoliceviolence.org. Now, if you look at both of them, largely the numbers are actually very, very similar. However, the difference between the two websites are statistica.com. Uh, uh, statistica uh, I've noticed they don't break it down for you. They don't really do any of the legwork. They don't even make available the numbers for you to do any of the legwork. All it is, is just a chart 
on their website. Uh, uh, you can see the sources information here, but, uh, you actually have to purchase it. Now, going back to mappingpoliceviolence.org, um, where you can download the full database, which is actually, uh, I found it funny because we were talking about this, uh, last night and you had, or the day before, and you had sent me literally the same exact database that they have on their website as far as uh where you uh were able to do your research and you know this is really the only data available police departments in cities uh nor states nor the government has been keeping track of any of this stuff according to their uh data they're saying here that police uh black people were 24% of those killed despite being only 13% of the population um, and they're three times more likely to be killed than white people. Um, in your own uh, combing over of the data that they have here available to us, would you agree with those numbers? Um, I would say in general, um, yeah, I didn't test those statistics. I didn't, honestly, I don't, the one thing is that I didn't see a whole lot more in terms of unarmed African-Americans being killed by cops, I didn't see a whole lot more than the white people. Um, and because the percentage, because the number is so small, it's easy to have a big variation in percentage. I, I, I think what's more alarming here is that there's no accountability. I think that that's really the bottom line. It's not really about race. It's more about accountability. Yeah. And, and let's talk about accountability and accountability in a minute. But, but first, let me say with regard to the data, like you said, there are questions as to the accuracy of the data in general. And the FBI does a lot of records keeping about this. And that's the safest data that I usually go to. And that's probably where this data originally came from, I would guess. But it's also possible that the Washington Post, who's been keeping that data, um, it's possible that they were keeping it based on newspaper um, because th in that data set is all the links to like um, mainstream news media articles about the the uh, deaths. So it's possible that they did some real and by the way, if they did do some really hardcore investigative journalism and tracked all of these, <laughs> they did a really good job. And I'm not used to the Washington Post doing a really good job. Okay, so we were just interrupted there by a headphone issue, and uh, I'm going to try and continue where I left off, if I can remember where I left off. Um, yeah, the accountability issue. I'm really interested in discussing, or I just wanted to make the point that the data itself is questionable um, because of, uh, you know, the FBI has its statistics. Um, it appears that uh, the Washington Post has been tracking things based on newspaper articles for lack of a better term. Um, and if that's what they did, that's really great. They did a really good investigative journalism uh, project there. Um, but I definitely have questions on how accurate it all is. Not from, not from one side or the other, because again, I don't have a political dog in this fight, so to speak. Um, I don't, I, you know, not the best term to use. I don't have a dog in the hunt, but that's also violent. Hunting is also violent. So maybe I should just say, I don't have a dog. I don't have a dog. So, um, <clears throat> so 
<laughs> but then it sounds like I hate dogs, but I actually love dogs. Now, um, so I, I don't uh, have a, a left-right kind of position here. Um, I'm willing to go wherever the data leads. And I think that's, uh, of course, when you start talking about um, a higher percentage of African-Americans killed by cops, the question is, why? Because if you're looking at it per capita, um, or if you're not looking at it per capita, if you're just looking at it in terms of numbers, or even per capita, you still have to then ask, okay, are, is there a reason for that besides racism? Let's say you have uh, 10 times more black people killed. For one thing, why are they, uh, why are they being held up in the first place, right? Like, uh, are they either about to or in the middle of committing a crime? Oh, yeah. There's tons of questions about the circumstances of each of those cases. Of course, the broad general questions are, is that because black people commit more crime? And statistically, they do. So statistically, African-Americans commit more crime than white people do per capita. So that could be a reason why, um, and I think is to a certain degree, the reason why, and we're talking about, and, and also violent crime, they specifically um, are engaged in more violent crime. Um, and that is definitely a factor, I think. I think for anyone to deny that that's a factor is problematic. It's a factor. How much of a factor it is is debatable. Um, I still think I still think that implicit bias training for cops is very important because no matter what they say, now a black cop, even and regardless, even black cops, when they're in a black neighborhood or when they're in a place where more violent crime takes place, they're going to be more on edge and more on guard. And they see a black guy and he's doing, you know, something that looks suspicious and maybe he, you know, comes at the cop in a way he shouldn't. And I'm talking about actual murder here where a cop kills somebody. Um, it's, it's quite possible that there is an implicit bias there, even among black cops. It's not a racial bias. And this is, I mean, it is a racial bias, but it's not like the cops are racist. It's like, um, in terms of white people being racist against black people. So it's not racism. Like I think my race or I think my color, color of my skin or my culture is better than yours, which is historically how people defined racism. It's more like, um, it's more like a, uh, a probability issue. Like it's a higher probability that people in this neighborhood who have black skin are going to be engaged in more crime. And so if I see a guy with a gun, I'm going to shoot first and ask questions later. They had uh, several cases. It was like 10 or 15 cases where people were shot and they had toy guns, you know, in the data. So I'm just using that as an example of like how someone could end up getting shot where it's from the cop's perspective, it's kind of justified. The guy was had it was walking around with a gun. And although I'm going to, when I say kind of justified, I mean, I mean, in a sense, because on, as a libertarian, as a strong libertarian, I'm going to say cops shouldn't be killing anyone unless that guy's pointing a gun at him or trying to run him over with a car or lunging at them. I mean, it, if a black guy has a gun, you don't shoot him. Yeah, it should be in self-defense. The guy has a gun. But and so these cases with toy guns, I don't think some guys running around with a toy gun pointing at a cop trying to scare him. I don't think so. That could be what happened. I doubt it. I think it probably was a kid with a toy gun or maybe he was, you know, playing around with other people trying to scare them or using it in a robbery. And the cop didn't know it was a toy and he shoots him 
too soon, you know, or something like that. Um, but my point is that I don't think, I don't think a guy is going to use a toy gun to threaten a cop because he knows he's going to get shot. He might use it to threaten other people. He might have had a toy gun at the scene. So it's hard for me to believe sometimes when I see that stuff like that, that a cop actually shot in self-defense against someone who had a toy gun, because I don't see them using the toy gun to threaten the cop. I see them maybe having a toy gun on them, maybe using it to threaten someone else previous to the cop showing up. But so there's things like that about the data set that I find, you know, where I think there's a lot of ambiguity and things that we don't know about, and we have to allow there to be room for that. Um, and not to go with the the assumption that either the right makes that by and large cops are justified or that the left makes that there's some kind of uh, serious like genocide happening with uh, far more black people getting killed than is uh, justified. I don't think either of them are really correct on it, probably. Yeah, if nothing else, I want people to hear this. Okay, and I'm not talking about cops getting in trouble necessarily. Uh, what I'm talking about is finish the damn investigations and find out what really happened and be honest and be, because I'm wondering if maybe, because there were hundreds of these pending investigations on that data set. And I'm thinking, well, fuck, if I'm, if, you know, it's quite possible that a bunch of these are being held up because they weren't justified. And maybe African-Americans are right out there on the streets who are afraid to call the cops when their house is being broken into because they don't know if the cops are going to show up and shoot them. Like maybe the fear that's out there is legitimate because even though the data doesn't show it because all of these are paying investigation, maybe there is more. Now, do I think it's on the, do I think we should use the term genocide? Do I think it, do I think it's like, I still think it's below you know, like the numbers I gave are like 0.0047%. I mean, we're talking about such a small number of people. I also don't think it points to any kind of systemic racism either. Yeah, I've become convinced of that. Yeah, and and yeah, not not in the sense of, um, uh, I think there's sometimes accidental systemic racism, like policies like like the 94 crime bill i think it was 94 that biden helped write and he's been very proud of it in the past well that crime bill ended up putting a lot of black fathers in prison over stupid marijuana convictions and stuff like that where you know taking them out of the home has been bad for the african american community and i look at that and i say it's not that it was racist it was just that it had a bad effect. That wasn't the intended effect. Some people would argue it was. And I'm just one of those who gives people more benefit of the doubt. I think that the Democrats at the time under Clinton wanted to show that they were strong on crime. And so they passed the bill to, you know, and, and we're like, and Hillary Clinton said, we're going to bring them to heal. That's one of the things she said. And she was saying that in the context of talking about inner city violence, which, and then a lot of people said that sounds racist. And I defended her and said, she's not, she wasn't talking about bringing black people to heal. That's not what she said. Give her the benefit of the doubt. She meant criminals, people who are, you know, being criminal, but, um, but people still attack her on that. And so the point was the Democrats were trying to be hard on crime, strong on crime. And I understand that politically. I understand where they were coming from. Um, philosophically, I disagree with what they did. But I would also say that the, the legislation in itself wasn't racist, and it certainly wasn't written by racists to be racist, but it had the effect of causing a systemic problem in the African-American community. And there's a big difference between talking about racism and 
having a, a negative effect on the African-American community. If you want to define, some people are doing this, they're redefining racism to mean simply um, some sort of systemic problem that like hurts one, like hurts black people more than white people. Okay. If you want to use that kind of loose definition, then I suppose this it was racist bill, you know, because it had a negative effect on the black population. Um, but I I don't define racism that way. I still define it in the traditional way it, it was it was defined for hundreds of years. Um, and so, uh, but I've gotten in arguments with people on the left over that who say that it no longer means that. That now it only means the systemic sort of um, the the view of systemic um, injustice for African Americans. So anyway. Uh, the data set that you're looking at, which is the same data that's on uh, uh, mappingpoliceviolence.org, according to that data set, uh, 99% of killings by police from 2013 through 2019 have not resulted in officers being charged with a crime. So when you, and I know that you had mentioned that earlier, that most of them were still under investigation for some reason or another. It was 99% of them are either still under investigation or have resulted in a police officer not being charged uh, uh, for whatever reason. Yeah. Most of them were considered justified. There was never an investigation or there was one and it was already, uh, it already found in the cops' favor that it was justified. That was the most of them. But there were still a lot of them. I would say like, out of that 90-something percent, it was like 30 percent were pending investigation still, which to me sounds like a lot. It sounds like way more than should be pending investigation. It's suspect, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. It's, uh, it's almost like they have something to hide. I think cops do. I think they protect themselves, and uh, I don't think— this day and age, whether or not, whether we're, we should be surprised about that or not, you know, maybe it was always that way anyways, but no, I think I agree. Um, I, I, you know, it's interesting because you and I are having this conversation right now and we're both taking a very balanced approach, which is so, so huge, you know, that we, that we're able to say, you know what, we don't really think it's about systemic racism, but we do think that, um, there needs to be more, um, uh, accountability for the cops. And it does seem like more African-Americans are being uh, murdered per capita than white people by cops. Um, you know, there's a lot of unanswered questions. Maybe it's even a bigger number than we know because of the 30% of pending. And I really like, I really like what we're doing here because you don't hear it in many other places nowadays. And it's really troubling for me that you don't hear people um, take sort of a balanced view and be intellectually honest about what they think the data shows wherever it goes, regardless, without political bias. I think that both political parties, uh, Democrats and Republicans, have just been hard at it for so long. I can see how you would attach yourself to one party, but then to just ignore facts based off that attachment, I think is dangerous and reckless. It's, it's incredibly dangerous. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing from the left and the right right now. Um, on the propaganda news media uh, TV shows, you know, it's just basically every time something happens to um, the other party, we have to attack it. You know, every time they do something, every, no matter what it is, it doesn't matter if they're even if they're kind of right or even if even if we defended our party when they did something similar, we're going to attack their party for doing something similar. And 
this is just constantly happening. And this is, to me, one of the things that worries me the most about political discourse in the U.S. right now is how ridiculously hypocritical um, the news media is. And they're supposed to be the ones who are out there doing the job for the for the citizenry to be able to look at all the data like this data set and interpret it themselves. Of course, the other problem is people don't take the data and interpret it themselves. They want to be spoon-fed what they should believe by the news media, but then the news media is just repeating talking points from the Democratic National Committee or from the Republican National Committee. So it's it's kind of a big uh, cesspool of propaganda floating around with uh, very few people really thinking for themselves. <laughs> Well, I think uh, I think that's going to about wrap it up here, Adam. I want to thank you for uh, stopping by and chatting with me here on Into the Ether. Very much appreciate it, and I think it's been a very eye-opening experience for most of us here anyway. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. I'm always willing to come on and talk about this or anything else, and especially in politics or in the news. It's interesting stuff. We're living in interesting times, man. We really are. Interesting to say the very least. I would encourage everyone to to slow down, take a deep breath, don't jump to conclusions, and try and get your hands on raw data as much as you can and think through things. Even if you only have enough time in your life to think through one issue very deeply for a week, take that one issue and unwrap it. And what you'll find is like with this data set that you and I are looking at, um, it's not really leading to any hard conclusions. If anything, it's raising kind of more questions. Um, and so it's not so easy to say there's a genocide of black people or there's systemic racism or that the number of um, African-Americans who are killed by cops is like far outweighs the number of whites per capita um, and that it's unjustified. It's, it's, it doesn't become as easy to say those things when you start looking at the data. A lot of times you come up with more questions and I'm like, OK. Yeah, it's not just black and white. Yeah. No, I, no I pun do, intended. I could do there. a whole podcast. <laughs> exactly what I thought. I could do a podcast on those, and I'm even thinking about maybe doing it where you look at each one of those cases specifically, and and then once you, at the end of two years or however long it takes you to do it, you would be the only one in the world who's probably looked at the data that specifically, and you would be the only one with the answers to whether or not you think that uh, there really is a racial inequity in terms of uh, violence, uh, aggressive force being used by cops. Um, that would be an amazing you know, thing, thing for anyone to do. And I don't know if anyone's ever done that yet or written a book on it. There have been some books written on it, but I don't know how much data they went through. Um, I don't think they ever went through the whole thing. I think it would be really interesting. Maybe, maybe if I can get a group of people to pay me, like on what, whatever, one of those uh, crowdfunding websites, if I could get people to fund me to do a podcast daily and go through each and every case and scour through all the reports and stuff and, you know, actually present and then at the end to come to some kind of um, conclusion on it, I'd be willing to make that my job for the next couple of years. So maybe I need to get on one of those uh, crowdfunding sites and see if I can get some support behind the, the, the idea. Words of wisdom from Adam Naranjo. Um, and I think uh, Timothy Leary said it best, think for yourself, question authority. Absolutely. Thanks very much again, Adam, for stopping by. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and I wish you the best in all of your endeavors moving forward. Thanks, Jack. I wish you the best as well. Well, that about does her. Wraps her all up. 
things seem to have worked out pretty good for Adam and Jack. And it was a pretty good story, don't you think? Made me laugh to beat the band. Parts, anyway. I guess that's the way the whole darned human comedy keeps perpetuating itself. Down through the generations, westward the wagons, across the sands of time, until we... Aw, oh, look at me. I'm rambling again. Well, I hope you folks enjoyed yourselves. Catch you on later down the trail. Leading the